The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Jonathan Gottschall, author of The Professor in the Cage, Why Men Fight and Why We Like to Watch. Jonathan is a distinguished research fellow in the English department at Washington Jefferson College in Pennsylvania, and his research has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, the New York Times, Scientific American, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, and many more. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Jonathan. Hey, it's nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. All right, Jonathan, so we're going to be talking about your new book, The Professor in the Cage, Why Men Fight and Why We Like to Watch. So what, who is the professor in the cage, and why do men fight, and why do we like to watch? <laughs> well, the professor in the cage is me. Um, I was working as a, an English professor at a small liberal arts college uh, a few years ago, and I was sort of, you know, pushing up on 40 years old, maybe kind of having like a baby uh, midlife crisis. And I was at office hours one day, and I happened to look out uh, the front window, and this new business had moved in across the street. This is all just by happenstance, and the business is one of these cage fighting gyms, and it was. As close as, you know, I could throw a snowball uh, and hit it, and I could watch the guys through the window. I could see them in there in the cage dancing and hitting and tackling. And I had this, you know, unexpected emotion watching them, and the emotion was envy. I envied them. They were so alive and brave in their cage, and I felt like I was sort of rotting away in my office cubicle. And so I had this sort of funny thought, and it was just a joke at my own expense. It was like, wouldn't it be funny if I went across the street and joined them? Me, because I'm almost 40, uh, I have this incredibly civilized job, I've never been in a fight in my whole life, and the next thought was more sober, it was like, well, you know, maybe there's a book in that, a sort of non-fiction version of Fight Club, I go across the street, I try to learn how to fight, but along the way I'd be asking these big, deep, ancient questions about the role that violence has played in human life. Which I think is a question we ask every day. I mean, I hear more and more either from friends or people on the radio that I interview or family. Like, is there more violence today than there was before? I mean, it seems that every day there's some horrific kind of, you know, a rape going on, killing, murders, mass murders, serial killers. So, I mean, this whole topic of violence is fascinating. Obviously, that's why it's, it's really good to have you on the show. So. You, this history of violence, you say, is kind of ingrained in our culture. It's part of who we are, part of who men are, and that in some ways this mixed martial arts, which could you explain in more detail what that is? Because there are a lot of my listeners who don't really know what yeah. mixed. Yeah. yeah, that's actually a great place to start. So, yeah, this is a sport that's only about 20 years old, so a lot of people are unfamiliar with it. Um, and mixed martial arts uh, began as a way of settling these old barroom arguments between martial artists. They all thought they had the best style, the most effective style. The boxers and the wrestlers thought they were best. The judo guys, the karate guys, the kung fu guys, they all were convinced that they had the single best style. 
So the early mixed martial arts tournaments were about putting up or shutting up. It was about taking talented representatives from each of these styles, literally locking them inside a chain-link cage and having them square off in these real no-holds-barred fights. And the results of these contests were really quite amazing, quite shocking, because the styles that everyone thought were superior, mainly styles like karate and kung fu, things like this, those guys didn't just lose. On the whole, they got massacred. They got humiliated. And so what came out of these contests was a realization that no one style works. What you had to do was mix the martial arts. And so mixed martial arts today is this hybrid sport where people fight, but they're fighting uh, with, with, with a skill set that basically includes kickboxing, uh, American-style collegiate wrestling, and a style of ground fighting called Brazilian jiu-jitsu which is about sort of rolling around on the ground and trying to uh, choke people or put locks on them that force them to tap out, that is to say uncle. So you're saying, Jonathan, that these kinds of this sport, this particular sport, which you said, what, the past 20 years has grown in popularity, is the fastest growing spectator sport in America, as I understand it? And yeah, I mean, there's some controversy about this because the, uh, the, the ratings go up and down. But, yeah, over, over the last uh, 10 years or so, there's really little doubt uh, that this has been the fastest-growing uh, sport. The fan base for mixed martial arts now rivals that of hockey, which is the fourth most popular uh, team sport in America. Okay, so why are we so interested in it as a culture, and what does it do for us? Well, you know, I think that's a that's a great question, you know, and it's one of the main questions that I was curious about going into the book. So I had been watching fights on TV for a long time, and I've been watching them, you know, boxing or MMA fights. I've been watching them in the spirit of guilty fascination. I'd be thinking to myself, yeah, I'm a decent, civilized, peace-loving person. You know, I appear not to be a sociopath, so why am I watching this? You know, what's wrong with me? But what's wrong with all of us? Because, you know, even those of us who wouldn't be caught dead cheering cage side or ring side still consume an enormous amount of violent spectacle in our, in our entertainment, you know, in our movies or films or video games. And, you know, I finally came around to the conclusion that what draws us to these fights as a spectator sport isn't really the bloodlust and the barbarism. That's what I thought going in, but it's not what I found. Uh, I think what draws us to it is really the drama. You know, these are incredibly intense, dramatic spectacles where you have kind of two heroes clashing in this incredibly decisive, climactic, uh, sort of heroic moment. Um, and there's a sort of drama that's very hard for us to resist. Like the Roman Colosseum, is, I think that's one of the examples that you give. I mean, are we no different, or it's a very similar kind of situation? We get our, are we getting our aggressions out, uh, or we're able to express these emotions that we don't do? Like you say, we're law-abiding, most of us, yeah. law-abiding citizens, so we don't do that on an everyday basis, but we can do it by watching these violent kinds of sports, I guess. I mean, I'm, when you're talking, I'm thinking about I graduated from Boston University, huge hockey team, yeah. and I am a pacifist, or I don't know if that's how I define myself, but I guess so yeah. anyway, but boy, did I like going to those hockey dings, and they well, were yeah, brutal. we all tell ourselves that. We all say that we hate violence, and yet we slurp it up. Uh -huh. Huge quantities of violence in our entertainment products. I think violence 
even more than sex is the great staple of our entertainment economies. And so if you've ever been to a hockey game, I'm sure, and you've been to hockey games, you'll, you'll know that you know the, the crowd it may cheer, the crowd may rant and rave, but they go native. They go crazy when that fight breaks out. You know, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't. The, the, the gladiator comparison, I think, is, is a pretty good one. Uh, I don't. I think it's imperfect, though. Uh, the main imperfection in the gladiator comparison um, is that the gladiators were slaves. You know, for the most part, almost all of them were slaves who had no choice in the matter. Uh, the difference with uh, modern combat sports is these guys do have a choice in the matter, um, and especially in mixed martial arts, uh, the guy, it's a very middle class sport. Um, the main main uh, uh, the main competitors for the last ten fifteen years now have mainly been college educated ex wrestlers with white collar options outside the cage. When we watch fighters on TV, we almost reflexively go for an exploitation narrative. Why would they be doing this? It must be because they're poor, they have no other options. Uh, that exploitation narrative, which worked very well for gladiators, which, which worked pretty well for boxers, doesn't work at all for uh, mixed martial artists. Okay, so explain the whole concept to us. So where does this, I mean, why, do, why are they doing it? Why are we watching them? And as I, it, it seems to me in your book you're saying that this is, a kind of a it's a good thing for us that it is yeah it's a, yeah so how how does all of this play out in terms of being good for our culture to be watching these violent mixed martial art people who are they're not slaves they're uh quite the opposite as you say middle class yeah, people who have choices to do other things for the first thing is you know i went into this project with all the stereotypes about this that most people have i went in thinking you know, you watch the guys in the cage, and they look like savage maniacs, and so you assume they must be savage maniacs. They must be violent, dangerous bullies. Uh, but then I went into this culture. I lived and in, in, sparred and trained inside mixed martial arts culture for about three years, and I found that none of that was true. These are ordinary young guys. Uh, most of them are not doing this because they get their jollies from beating people up. Uh, most of them are doing it because it's the most intense challenge and test uh, that they could find. Uh, they're, they're guys who are looking for a bit of a quest in their lives, and mixed martial arts gives it to them. Now, you asked about this idea of this being kind of a good thing. Well, that was sort of the big idea uh, that, that, that ended up running through the whole book. Um, the book is about something that I call the monkey dance. And if you've ever seen uh, a nature video, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, if you've ever seen that nature video where you see these two elephant seals clashing in the surf or these two mountain goats, you know, cracking skulls on a mountainside, biologists call those sorts of contests ritual combat. It's a way that animals have developed to figure out who is bigger and stronger and tougher and fitter without having to fight it out to the death. Now, Humans are animals, too. We seem to like to forget that. We're complicated animals, we're cultured animals, or we're animals still. And the monkey dance is my name for human versions of ritual combat. Everything from deadly duels to verbal duels to the play fights of boys to sports, including rough sports like mixed martial arts and football. The key thing about these contests is that they oftentimes look silly and destructive. Maybe they'll look like ridiculous macho posturing and, and, and bluster. 
But on the whole, they're a good thing. On the whole, they, they give people a way to work out their hierarchies and thrash out their disputes in ways that fall short of all that violence. They channel aggression down relatively safe pathways. All right, so they're channeling aggression for themselves or for us, for the people who are watching, or how, I mean, who? who? I, I, I think it's for them. I think it's for them. Um, not just not just the fighters. Again, what I'm what I'm what I'm arguing is this this is a a trend and a pattern that you find in male life generally, especially the the especially young males that work out their their status hierarchies, work out their disputes in these sorts of restrained contests where they don't need to fight each other with their fists necessarily, um, but maybe they're just doing it in their arguments or their, or in a, in a sports. Uh, that they play. Um, so there there's are always a there are boundaries, co- there are, yeah, constraints, boundaries, rules, regulations that yeah, keep the, this the, violence contained. The whole contained. point is it's always a restrained conflict. The point is not to give free reign to violence and to give violence, you know, to, to let people express their violence as wantonly as they want to. The idea is to always lock violence up in chains. Um, to lock it up in chains to, to, and to discipline it with rules. And, you know, there's always this theory in the social sciences, it was sort of the, the theory of catharsis, that by watching these sorts of violent spectacles, it would make us less violent in real life. We get our aggression jollies out uh, by watching a violent film, and we would sort of purge our own aggressive tendencies uh, through, through that experience. Nice theory. The problem is that about 50 years of social science has failed to find any evidence for it. So I don't think that watching these spectacles has any kind of wholesome effect on us um, in purging our aggressive tendencies. But I also don't think it makes us any worse. You just answered my question because I was going to say, does it do the opposite? I was having a conversation with a friend the other night, and he was saying, like, do you think watching some of these shows on television, like, which is, well, CSI, which is one of my favorite shows, but, uh, you know, does that give people ideas to do things, or um, do they get ideas from television shows to commit, you know, what we were talking about serial killers or violent acts? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you, you started out, you started off the interview by, by noting uh, that it seems like the world is getting more violent. Yeah. Um, in fact, you know, I'd, I'd recommend to your readers this wonderful book by Stephen Pinker called The Better Angels of Our Nature which shows through exhaustive detail and exhaustive statistics that the world is much, much safer than it's ever been. And mainly what's giving us the sense that the world is more dangerous is blanket news coverage, bleeds it leads, you know, it's just terrifying us. Uh, But the world is much, much safer. All kinds of violent crime is down, way down uh, over over the last uh, few decades. Um, so what's happened is people are consuming more and more violent entertainment, more than ever before, uh, more graphic video games, more graphic films, and as the world is getting safer and safer. So the idea that, you know, when we, our kids play these, you know, violent video games or you watch CSI, that that's going to teach us that violence is okay, that is a nice theory again. It makes sense. It's very plausible, but it just hasn't borne out in the research. So, well, I guess, how do you, I mean, I, what you're saying is maybe why we think that it, the world is more violent or why we seem to feel it's that is just so we have access to more information. Uh, you know, if if somebody gets 
killed in Minnesota. Exactly. We hear it over it feels, and over. It feels 24- like it happened in your backyard, but what? it didn't. Yeah, if somebody kills and gets killed, if there's a school shooting in Minnesota, it feels like it happened in your backyard, you know, and it feels like your children are at massive risk, you know. And so, uh, yeah, people are, people are basically massively overestimating their risk of crime. I was talking to an old lady in my neighborhood just yesterday at the bus stop, and she was talking about, oh, the good old days when you didn't need to lock your doors and lock your cars. And, uh, and she was, you know, complaining about how dangerous and, and messed up the world has become. And, you know, I didn't tell her this, but, you know, back when those days when she left her doors unlocked, the world was a much more dangerous place than it is today. But why didn't you tell her? Because <laughs> um, I didn't want to get in a fight with this old lady who would never believe it. I've had this fight with other people, and they just don't believe it. They're like, what are you talking about? Didn't you, didn't you watch the news yesterday? People don't believe in statistics. People believe in stories. You know, so you get the stories every day, these gruesome, bloody, uh, awful stories uh, that traumatize them. And they're not really interested in uh, or, or, or find convincing all the statistics Stephen Pinker has laid out in his book. Yeah, well, you hear the story over and over and over. You begin to believe it, and that becomes a fact, no matter what the, as you say, no matter what the statistics say, right? That's right. All right, so now that you did that, you did this for three years. You are you saying when you went in and you were practicing taking lessons, or you were joining the martial arts community, or the uh, was that a three a, a three year project? Yeah, um, and by the way, I, I don't know if you're getting static on the line. I'm, I'm, I'm getting, getting a lot of static on, on my end, but I think I I think I heard your question. Um, uh, I, I yes, I, I, I trained for about, for about three years. I expected to only train for a year, to have my you know formal uh, cage fight, um, and then to quit the moment that fight was over. That's all I planned to do. But you know, the biggest surprise for me doing the book was how much I liked it. Uh, I didn't expect to like uh, training in, in, in mixed martial arts. I just wanted to do it to see what it was like. Uh, so I liked it so much I ended up continuing to train for another couple of years um, and only gave it up, and with great sadness, actually, uh, when my body sort of gave out and I just really couldn't, uh, couldn't do it anymore. I was too injured. How would you, what happened? I mean, you're talking, you're, what, you're in your 30s, so in other words, just after a period of a couple of years, things started to, what, you just ruin your, your knees, your legs? I mean, it's just, it's, it is brutal, yeah, just, I guess. You know, yeah, I, I was... I was 39 when I started, and like you know, 41 and a half or something when when I when I gave it up. Um, and so I was, you know, I was 20 years older than most guys uh, at the gym, and it's a it's a rough sport, you know. I, I've described it to other people as basically it's one-on-one tackle football with the addition of punching and kneeing and kicking and elbowing and strangling, you know. And so but you, it made you, you feel good. A, I mean, you're saying you injuries. really felt good. I mean, this was supposed to be a research. It was, obviously, research project, but at the same time, you felt really good doing this violent kind of stuff. There was some – it got your testosterone going? Because that's my next question. Where uh, do women fit into this? You know what? This? You know, I, I think, again, this is, this is why it was so valuable to actually do the participatory research rather than just look at it from the outside. So if you're looking at it from the outside, it looks really violent and really savage. Um, but when you're doing it, especially when you're the, the stuff in the gym, when you're training with your friends at the gym and you're sparring with them at the gym, 
none of the emotions are the aggressive, violent emotions. You're kind of what it what it feels like to me. The emotion, what the emotional tone was for me, was exactly the tone of roughhousing when I was a boy. You know, it was like it was just like getting to be getting to be a boy again, having and experiencing those those sort of giddy emotions that came with rough play, rough and tumble play when when I was a boy. Um, men don't like to fight. Fighting is not fun. You know, fighting is violent and scary and, and, and dangerous. But what, what men and, and boys like to do is to play fight. And at the gym, that's what we're doing. It's rough play fighting, but it's still just play fighting. Right, so how do women fit into that? That was part of the question, I think, when we were getting the static. But um, is that how are women just categorically just different? I mean, that's not a need that we have, you know, estrogen versus testosterone or what? Yeah, I think there's. I think there is a biology to this. Um, I mean, no one's saying that everything about gender is biologically determined, and we're all just genetic robots acting out the DNA script. Um, so, discussions of sex differences are always really controversial. But probably the least controversial sex difference um, is tendencies towards aggressive behavior and t- tendencies towards physically violent behavior. Men simply dwarf women in that respect. They've dwarfed them uh, in every single culture that's ever been studied by anthropologists or ever studied by historians. So women are not non-aggressive. Women are aggressive. Women do compete. Uh, Women do play hardball in their competitions with each other, but they play it differently than men do. Uh, They're much more, again, just much less likely to resort to physical forms of aggression. Uh, Women are aggressive. There is, they do, they are, they can be, they are aggressive, but it's not in this physical form, this like martial arts kind of thing, but we do it in a different way. Maybe it's more verbal. Uh, That's right. It's manifested in different kinds of behaviors, the aggression. Yeah, it's, it's, it's mean girl stuff. So it's, 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 it's not physically violent. Women are much less likely to resort to sticks and stones and fists, um, but it's still uh, hardball. Um, and, again, there's, of course, in any sort of gender difference, there's going to be broad overlaps. And so, you know, I'll say that, you know, men are taller than women. You'll name 16 women who are taller than me. So we're talking about statistical averages. And, you know, there's a woman right now who's probably the biggest star in mixed martial arts. Her name is Ronda Rousey, and uh, she's an incredibly dominant fighter and an incredibly charismatic personality. Um, But even given Rousey, you know, women are are still massively underrepresented, not only in violent statistics in the outside world, but in in likelihood of of wanting to compete in combat sports. So... uh... Next question, what about, now, you, you know, you did this for three years, and then you kind of, I don't want to say ruined your body, but, you know, you were in a position where you just didn't want to batter yourself anymore. So yeah. now what does one do? Now what do you do? Because you're 40 years old, um, and you're not doing this mixed martial arts, so how does your aggressive behavior manifest itself if you're not doing this? Well, again, I want to, I want to, I want to push back a little bit on the aggressive behavior thing. Okay. Um, when, when I, I, I find the gym to be a fairly non-aggressive place. There's all kinds of hitting and punching and kicking and tackling going on, and it seems really aggressive to watch it. But the, 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 the 
emotions are not aggressive emotions so much as just competitive emotions, the same sort of emotions you'd have if you were in a, in a wrestling match or playing basketball or playing ping pong, for that matter. Um, what do I do? Uh, lately, I've been trying to cure myself. I've been, by doing yoga, I've, I've, I've gone to the other end of the spectrum. I go, I go to the power yoga class. I'm usually the only guy in the class with a bunch of uh, women. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I, find it, I find it great. Um, I'm kind of enjoying the contrast between that really uh, masculine world of the, of the mixed martial arts gym and the much more feminine and, frankly, non-competitive world of the yoga gym. But it's still a really intense place. You know, the, the, the workout is very hard, uh, especially for me because I'm, um, I'm not very flexible. So you're challenging yourself, your body, your mind, uh, and your, I guess, in, in your ability. So it is a, it's, a, it's competition, but in a different form. Yeah. This, I mean, really, it's, it's, I mean this, this is the big difference between how men and women generally, again, there's going to be differences here, but how men and women generally approach exercise. So women are just as physically interested in exercising as men are. All the stats show that. But they're less attracted to competitive forms of exercise. They're less attracted to sports. So they're, less, they're more likely to get their exercise on the jogging trail or at yoga class, whereas men are more likely, like four times more likely, to do so in, in competitive forms of sport. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed the yoga gym, but part of the reason I'm, I'm there, I have to confess, is, is, is in hopes of sort of healing my body and so I can get back into the, into the martial arts gym. Well, I, I think you just touched on something. I think, and I think for myself as a woman, competitive. I, I like to compete with myself, and so yeah. you know, if, if I'm walking or running or jogging or yoga or those kinds of things, I can always up the ante for my own score or do better than what I did. Right. Yeah, but I don't necessarily have to do it against someone else, another woman or a man. But yeah, so it's sort of a form of self competition, a little bit different. And yeah, I think that's right. That, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's what I sense when I'm at the yoga gym too. Everyone's working hard. Everyone's pushing themselves. Everyone, but it's but it's but there's no sense of needing to vanquish everyone else in the class. Are you the only man at the yoga gym? For the most part, yeah. I, I usually I usually am. Sometimes there's another old guy, but there's there's, there's very few young men there. You know, uh, young men don't go in for it. It seems kind of sissified, I think, to, to young men, um, and it seems. Uh, and they and they and they gravitate towards competitive forms of exercise. Yeah, and they continue to do so. Yeah, I mean, I think it's true. You see that in the elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, young, really young people doing that. Um, it's been great talking to you today. Very interesting topic. And I want to make sure that my listeners, because we have to say goodbye um, in a minute or two. But the professor in the cage: Why men fight and why we like to watch. Um, you can buy the book at Amazon online bookstores everywhere but uh jonathan so that we can follow you and um you know continue to watch uh, to watch you <laughs> uh, what uh what website can we go to oh you, just, just my name is jonathan com. yeah and you also I'm, have I'm also a, out there on twitter uh, something like jonathan gotch or something like that i also watched one of you have a tedx uh I think you did a TEDx program. I saw one of those, not on this book, but on another yeah, one. Yeah, on the last book, on the storytelling animal. Yeah, <laughs> which is great. Keep telling your stories. Great to have you on the show today. Thank you, Catherine. I appreciate it.
Yeah, thank you. Jonathan Gottschall, the professor in the cage, Why Men Fight and Why We Like to Watch. Uh, we're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even co-worker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Meredith Jones, author of Women of the Street, Why Female Money Managers Generate Higher Returns. Uh, Meredith is, uh, she's described as an alternative investment consultant and author, and author of the book, Women of the Street. Um, she began her alternative investment career at Van Hedge Fund Advisors International, where she was director of research at Van. Uh, she was responsible for manager selection, due diligence, index construction, and aggregate industry research for the $500 million fund of funds. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Meredith. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, you're a woman woman in business, which just before the show we talked a little bit, which is somewhat odd in this industry, unfortunately, I guess. But uh, but you've been doing it for a long time, and you've had a lot of experience. So starting with that, let's begin. Women of the Street, Why Female Money Managers Generate Higher Returns. And, of course, when I saw the title, I thought, you know, is that really true? Because I always think of men and Wall uh, and Wall Street, and I live near Wall Street, and I see all these men on Wall Street and the women uh, with the baby carriages on the street. So I should start with that. Um, it seems and, 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 you that, know, I think that's the reaction I get from a lot of people, to uh-huh. be honest. Um, you know, when I was writing the book, I would talk to various and sundry women in my life, many of whom are very successful in their chosen careers, lawyers, uh, doctors, um, you know, all types of different careers, and, and they would ask me, what are you working on right now? 
And I told them, you know, I'm working on a book about women in finance. And they're like, oh, really? What's it about? And I always would tell them, well, you know, it's actually about the fact that women may have an edge when it comes to managing money. And all of them were very surprised by that. They're like, you know, well, I let my husband manage my money or I have a male financial advisor. Um, but all of them also stopped to think for a second and and really – you could almost see a little bit of confidence build. They were like, really? Well, maybe I should try this. And and that's one of the primary reasons that I wrote the book, uh, was to help women understand that they do have some innate, some innate talents in this area. So for, we will, obviously we want to know what those talents are, but you maintain in the research that you've done for the book that women investors consistently outperform men. That's the big su- surprise because I, too, have this kind of – it's a bias, obviously, not based on any research that I've done. So I'm really interested. Women really do consistently outperform men, and if they do, how do they do it, which is obviously what you talk about in the book. We have certain characteristics or abilities or behaviors that are – uh, help us to do this or to perform in that way or to be outperformed men. Right. So I think one of the reasons that that persistent uh, belief exists that, you know, men are the backbone of Wall Street is because there's so few women that are investing money. If, if you look at the numbers today, I think the industry accepted uh, average for the number of percentage of women on Wall Street that are managing money is about 5%. Uh, and that is obviously something that is abysmally low. And so when most people think about Wall Street, they can name a lot of male money managers. I think everyone is familiar with, you know, uh, Warren Buffett or Julian Robertson or George Soros or John Paulson. I, you know, I think that those monikers are the things that pop to people's mind when they think about successful money management. But they don't tend to think about people named, you know, Leah or Teresia or Tura or, you know, any any female name. It, when I ask people to name a, a successful female money manager, most of them really struggle to do that. And so I think that's part of what that perception is. But when you start to dig into the numbers, what you find is something that is, I think, very intriguing. And that is if you look at professional money managers, so let's say hedge fund managers, for example, um, I built an index of uh, hedge fund, women-run hedge funds and compared that to the universe at large. And what you saw was over uh, a six-and-a-half-year period, there was a six-percentage point differential in the performance in favor of the women-run funds. And when you look at women-owned brokerage accounts, which is obviously a much larger sample size, you see similar outperformance. There's generally outperformance of about one percentage point a year, which doesn't sound like it would be that much. But when you compound that over time, that can really add up. And even when you look at women-run 401K or IRA accounts, you see some significant outperformance there as well. So in a a Vanguard study of IRA accounts, they looked at men-run and women-run IRAs. And what they found was that during the financial crisis, so 2007 to 2009, women actually generated a return that was about three percentage points better than men. So there is a pretty significant body of evidence to suggest that this outperformance is there. All right, so two questions related to that. First, then why are we, it seems like our attitude towards women and investing 
is just prejudicial. It's just based on prejudice. It's not based on the facts. It's not based on any kind of research. We just somehow think in our culture that women, when it comes to money, would not, cannot invest money um, in the same way that men can, cannot be as successful. But it's based on just, just prejudice? Well, it's based on there's there is a, a backhanded compliment that women investors often get, and that that is that they are more risk adverse. And risk adverse can be a compliment, meaning that you are able to preserve capital. But unfortunately, when you're looking at a very profit uh, and return driven environment like Wall Street, risk averse is actually something of an insult. What it's basically saying is that you won't take a risk as a woman that will generate the high returns that I'm looking to get. And so that perception certainly has, I think, filtered through uh, a lot of society. And I think that's one of the reasons why we tend to think that women couldn't be as successful as money managers. But then one of the things that you say, I guess, is would be a counter to this in the book, which I found interesting, is that men are overconfident. They are overconfident. If they think something, they, they, will, they will, maybe the opposite of risk adverse, they take too many risks because they, they have too much confidence in themselves, and sometimes they don't necessarily take a look at the big, bigger picture. And so that overconfidence gets them in trouble. Right. And, you know, really what, what a lot of the research points to is that women aren't necessarily risk averse. What they have is a different probability weighting scale. So, for example, if you're trying to estimate how high a stock price may potentially get or how high any investment price may potentially get, uh, men have a tendency to overestimate price at target prices and women have a tendency to, um, perhaps do a better job of matching their expectations to reality. And so that very flat probability weighting curve gets interpreted as risk aversion when, in fact, it's just a different way of looking at the likelihood that an investment is going to be successful. And overconfidence certainly does play a role in that. Uh, when you look at the, the three primary drivers of this differentiated behavior, what you tend to see are uh, that biology plays a pretty significant role. Uh, women have uh, less testosterone than men, and testosterone causes men to uh, often interact with the markets in uh, pretty aggressive and outward ways. Uh, there's also some differences in brain structure uh, that can cause uh, women to react differently to investing and market stressors. For example, uh, there's a part of your brain called the amygdala, and it is one of the oldest parts of the brain, and it has to do with fight or flight, so how you act when you get stressed out. And men, the, the amygdala is much larger, and, and it tends to, the way that it's connected, it tends to make men react more outwardly to stress, where women tend to react a little more inwardly to stress. And so one of the things that tends to happen from that is that women are, are a little bit better at um, ignoring market noise. So when the markets really get shaky, women are less likely to sell just because the markets are bad. They tend to do a really good job of saying, is my investment still good? And if it is, they don't get shaken out of that position. Uh, in addition, there's some cognitive issues. We've already talked a little bit about overconfidence and uh, probability weighting, but overconfidence really plays a tremendous role. Um, one of the things that overconfident people do is they have a tendency to 
act on every idea that they have because they think it's a good one. Uh, you know, so in investing, what that translates into is that every time you think you should buy something, if you're overconfident, you buy it because, of course, you're right. And every time you think it's time to sell something, uh, you sell it because, of, think you, of course, you think you must be right. And what happens is that, as a result, um, men, because they do tend to be more overconfident, they trade a lot more. And we all know that over time, trading too much can actually seriously eat into profits. The people who trade the most generally are the least profitable investors. Um, and so the cognition and the biology and then these behaviors that come out of it, like not selling into a bad market and not trading so much, that's what really creates this strong performance of women investors. And that's something that you can see in individual investors uh, and then also in professional female money managers. So how do we get more women at the top of the investment world? I mean, how does that work? Because given what you say, we should be doing that, obviously, but we're not. And, and the statistics are kind of dismal in terms of the women who are head, you know, uh, head of hedge funds and, and on Wall Street. I was thinking, you know, I have a son. One of my sons went to uh, Wharton a few years ago, and, and uh, when I went down and visited him, I, I think Wharton was like not 50-50 exactly, maybe 45 65 or whatever, and it's almost half and half, though, in terms of women who are getting their MBA. Now, I'm not sure that's true in the other uh, MBA programs or not. Is it, you know, what uh, that, the, that, I mean, that's a good ratio, but, but what happens is you tend to see choke points at every point uh, of the educational process and, and the process that moves women into these very high-ranking, uh, you know, uh, roles where they have responsibility for managing money. So if you looked at the transition between middle school and high school, then you would see uh, a drop-off in the number of women who think that business or finance is an interesting or acceptable career. If you look at the transition from high school to college, you see, again, another drop-off. If you look at college to graduate school, you see another drop-off. Graduate school into an analyst program, you see another drop-off. And so you know, there there are a lot of reasons, I think, why we don't have uh, the, the good number of women in the industry. And But I think the number one thing that will change that is identifying that there is a sustainable and competitive reason to hire women. You know, it, the market uh, and Wall Street love to make returns and profits. And so I think as more research comes out and more people accept the research that says, this isn't something that you're doing to feel good. This is something that you're doing to make more money, uh, that we will see a shift in not only in Wall Street behavior and them trying to capture the return-producing um, aspects of, of having more women on staff, but also investors will demand to have access to more um, uh, diverse portfolio managers, more diverse uh, investment banking, more diverse registered investment advisors. Uh, but they will demand that in order to be able to capture those returns. Well, are you the lone female money manager in this whole sea of men? I mean, or... I, I am not, but uh, but I started in the industry in 1998, and uh, as you mentioned, I was director of research for a company called Van Hedge Fund Advisors, and I did not meet another woman who did a job that was similar to mine until 2007. 
So almost 10 years into my career before I met someone who looked like me and thought like me. So how did and, you not get discouraged? I want to take, you know, you're here you are, I mean, plowing through or pushing your, you know, pushing ahead, but here you are by yourself kind of, I'm using the word struggling, but, you know, with all of, surrounded by all of these men and trying to prove yourself, I would imagine. How did you do it, like emotionally, personally? Well, you know, I think that the that I have a pretty similar uh, outlook to many of the women in that I interviewed for my book, and that is that I believe that if that money management is one of those jobs that if you do it well, the results are very apparent, and you can't really argue with them. And so when you take that as as kind of your beacon and your guide then you can create the belief that you can do this. You know, one of the one of the women that I interviewed said that one of the attractions for this industry is that it doesn't matter whether her name is Leah or Leonard. Um, her numbers are her numbers. And I have tended to have that same kind of attitude that, you know, I am in this because I, I feel like I have some talent for it. And uh, as long as I can demonstrate that, that eventually I'll get where I need to go. Um, I also think I'm a little stubborn, and I also think that I have a tendency to tilt at windmills. So you put all of those three things together, and, and I think that helps to, to explain it. Well, I, I know one of my prejudices, and I'll admit it, has always been, and this really wasn't, uh, this had to do with the legal profession and, and uh, hiring a lawyer, and there was a smart young woman in one of the firm's top law school, et cetera, working part-time because she had two little kids. And I, I thought, well, she's going to be doing working part-time, two little kids. She's not really going to be focusing on full-time what I need her to do. So I didn't choose that particular firm because of that. That was fairly recent. I was really surprised at myself. But um, I don't know if the same applies to, you know, in, you know, to what we're talking about in terms of female money managers. But there was that it was just a prejudice. It really had nothing to do with her skills necessarily, and I think that does come into play. Well, and, you know, I think it, I, I hesitate to use the word prejudice because it, it's kind of pejorative and, and it has yeah. such negative connotations. But what I do think that we have to think about is that uh, humans just in general tend to look for patterns that they know to be successful. That's one of the ways that your brain helps you to make decisions uh, and to make decisions quickly so that you don't have to reprocess every new piece of information like it's in, like you've never thought about it or never seen the situation before. And so, again, when, when you look at money management, when you look at the at traditionally male-dominated um, industries or professions, most of the patterns that people have are of male success. And so it's it's unfortunate that that's what our pattern recognition is, but that's what it is. And so when you see uh, a law firm for that you're considering, you know, your idea of successful lawyers comes from Hollywood. It comes from, you know, stories that other people have told you. It comes from who you read about in the paper. And so your pattern recognition pointed you away from that particular decision. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do in this book, I, I actually profile 11 female-run funds. I want to give people some ideas of what different patterns look like, because the only way we can change this is if people recognize that, that success may not look like what you think it looks like, um, and that's really an important factor. Okay. Well, let's talk about one of those behaviors as you talk about women, out-of-the-box thinking, for instance. 
Mm-hmm. That's something that women do really well. What, how do we? What is out of the box thinking, and and we do it well. And how does that work? In you know, in terms of our uh, managing money or money managers. Well, last year there was an interesting article that came out uh, around mid-year that was talking about how 15 of the largest uh, all-male run hedge funds all had positions in the same stock. It was AIG. Um, and it was talking about how this was such a big deal. And I looked at that, and frankly, it scared me because a lot of people tend to think about a diversified investment portfolio uh, by the number of funds that they have or the um, types of strategies they have or the types of geographies. And they don't really think to themselves, gee, all of these, you know, I may have 15 funds in my portfolio, and all of them may own the same thing. Um, you know, that's something that uh, is, I guess, a kind of a hidden aspect of, of concentration that if you're not looking very deeply into what you're investing in and, and the fund man- what the fund managers that you invest with are investing in, you could totally miss that. And so one of the things that was very intriguing to me when I was researching this book was that the women that I interviewed had a tendency to invest off the beaten path. So they weren't looking for the next hot thing uh, and kind of piling into um, what I would call trendy or hot stocks. Um, and if they did, they tended to be one of the first people into them. So, you know, they, were, they might be in the same stock, but, but they were in very early. And I think that that is a critical driver of this differentiated performance because when you have a stock that has uh, a lot of activity, you know, you're gonna, your uh, profits and losses are going to be determined by what everybody else in that stock is doing. And so if you, you know, the fact that women tend to invest in things that they understand, that they think are longer-term investments, they're not uh, getting into things that they think that they're going to be day trading or that they're going to be getting out of really quickly in, in general, you know, that can really create some additional diversification within a portfolio and theoretically can help protect you uh, if there is a market crash and everyone starts running for the exits. Meredith, what were some of the surprises, or were there, or was there any one surprise when you invest, when you invested, when you were uh, uh, interviewing these women for your book? Uh, any kind of characteristic or behavior that really surprised you that, that either many or one or two of these women had that was different than what you had expected? Probably the biggest surprise is, you know, I did ask everybody what it was like to be a woman on Wall Street. And and I guess I expected, you know, based on, you know, what we tend to hear in the media and based on some of the recent uh, court cases like the Ellen Powell case uh, and and others, that people were going to have some bitterness um, or some animosity towards the experiences that they had had. But I would say overall, the women that I interviewed were very um, sanguine about their experiences. You know, they knew they were a woman, they knew they were different, but they didn't really let that get in their way. They kept their head head down, they saw the job, they did the job, and they avoided the misery as much as they could. Um, and the other thing that I think was, was interesting was how many good uh, situations that they found themselves in. You know, one of the women that I interviewed, for example, uh, she uh, had a baby uh, after 
uh, maybe about eight to ten months on a on a new job, and her company valued her so much that they took an empty office next to hers, and they built a nursery so that she could bring the baby to work and continue to be productive and contribute and not feel like she wasn't getting to see the baby. Now, of course, when the the baby got old enough to crawl and crawled into the CEO's office and dumped over an enormous potted plant that had to end. But, you know, there were there were definitely concessions that were made by many of the firms, which led me to conclude that if everybody really wants a situation to work, uh, whether there are children involved or whether there's a work-life balance question or anything like that, it worked. Uh, and I think that a lot of people would be surprised by that. Yeah, I would be surprised by that, I have to say. That does surprise me because I always found, and I, you know, maybe not having had the experience, but, like, aren't babies distracting? If you if someone is sitting there managing your millions of dollars and then they also have their three-month-old baby in the next room, you know, which takes priority? I mean, you, it's really difficult to be in two places at once, emotionally and, and mentally. Um, that would be distracting for me as a client. Right, but but like I said, what what it meant was that you know there was actually the an increased ability to focus. And of the eleven female-run funds that I met, that I interviewed, all but two of the women had children. So everybody has been able to achieve significant uh, success, even in you know with even dealing with work-life balance. And, of course, like I said, a lot of that has to do with the environment that they're in. You know, one of the private equity uh, managers that I interviewed, Raquel Palmer, uh, is partners with, uh, is the only woman partner in her firm. And, you know, she talks about the struggles that uh, the males in her firm also have with work-life balance. And so, as a result, they really respect uh, her need to to be able to do you know, go to soccer games or be with her kids or, or what have you. And so I think that, you know, one of the things that, that was intriguing to me was just that there was a realization that work-life balance is an issue for everybody, not just women. Um, and, again, that if people wanted a situation to work and they, again, saw a fiscal reason to make a situation work, that they would go above and beyond to do that. Great point, and uh, we have to say goodbye on that one, but a fascinating book and, and uh, recommended highly to my listeners, Women of the Street, Why Female Money Managers Generate Higher Returns. Meredith Jones, great. Give us a website we can go to, too, so we can keep up with you. You can go to www.aboutmjones.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at MJ underscore Meredith underscore J. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Great. Meredith Jones, Women of the Street, and I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.